Thank you, Alan, for another great show. And good evening. You're watching Fred Paul on ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. To watch our content, both live and on demand, all you need to do is download the app for your phone or TV at your usual app store. You can also find all our shows as podcasts wherever you download your audio programs. Now, one of the benefits of being on the center right of politics and culture is that everybody else eventually falls over their own tripwires. When you're making it up as you go along, as people from the left invariably do, it doesn't take much to be mugged by reality. Australia's own Peter Fitzsimons is a fine exponent of this, defending the right of Muslims, but not Christians, to have strident opinions about homosexuality, or arguing for a special Indigenous voice to Parliament, but only one that he agrees with. Here's another example, this time from overseas. Some residents at a student housing block at the University of California have banned white people to protect themselves from racism. The rules of the house state, quote, many people of color moved here to be able to avoid white violence and presence, so respect their decision of avoidance if you bring white guests. White guests are not allowed in common areas, unquote. Well, to paraphrase a famous phrase by an apocryphal US general in the Vietnam War, the students had to become racist in order to prevent it. The bigotry of the left is not a laughing matter for people like Lyle Shelton, though. I will be speaking to him later about the case he is fighting to defend not only free speech, but also the innocence of childhood. I'll also speak to Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs about the direction Anthony Albanese is taking Australia. And in a second, we will have another look at the shark debate just as Australia emerges from winter and families start planning their annual holidays to the beach. Plus, Woke Watch will see whether the provocateurs at Triple J are earning their wages these days. Now let's get into it. In 1975, a film called Jaws dramatically alerted millions of people to the presence of great white sharks in the ocean. The shark in the film, although a mechanical fake, created a realistic perception that this species was both violent and stupid. Great white sharks have suffered from an image problem ever since, a problem that isn't helped by their tendency to attack and often kill divers, swimmers and surfers, including kids, which they've been doing with increasing frequency lately. Our, our academic class, however, see themselves as less gullible than the plebs who watch box office hits at the cinema. They scoff at the fools who don't realise great whites are instead fascinating beasts, worthy of our respect and curiosity for the role they play at the top of the marine food chain. In 2014, Sydney University academic Christopher Neff coined a new term, the Jaws Effect, which supposedly defines the political response to an attack based on an assumption about the shark's intentions, the perception that all shark attacks are fatal, and that killing the shark is the only solution. Never mind that no politician would ever respond to an attack like that these days. It has been years since we had a pol politician who dared introduce policies that placed a human life above that of an animal like a great white. What Neff doesn't realise is that the Jaws effect applies to him as well. Jaws is set on an island off the northeast coast of the United States, where the entire economy relies on the money spent by tourists over the summer holidays. 
When a woman is killed by a shark while skinny dipping one night at the start of summer, the town mayor tries to cover up the cause, saying it might have been a boating accident. Tourists and fishermen continue to go in the water, and two more people die. The villains in the movie are those who try to convince the townsfolk and tourists that there's nothing to worry about, that the water is perfectly safe. There's no ambiguity about this. Like all villains throughout history, they are the people who twist the truth in order to save their own livelihoods. In other words, the villains in Jaws are the same as the researchers and bureaucrats who now dominate the debate about sharks in Australia. Their careers depend on us believing great whites are endangered and therefore require extensive research and expensive management programs. When these scientists were lobbying to protect great whites throughout the 1990s, they were unequivocal that the species population was in a precipitous decline. In the 23 years since the species has been protected, however, their confidence in their ability to declare which direction the species population is going has mysteriously diminished. Despite fishermen complaining they can't haul in a catch without sharks taking it off the line, surfers reporting constant sightings and encounters, and of course the increasing rate of attacks, our researchers struggle to estimate how many sharks are out there. The latest estimate, made almost five years ago, is that there could be 2,900 great whites off the east coast of Australia. Or the number could be more than four times that, at 12,800. They just don't know. And as long as the research funding continues and protection isn't lifted, they don't care. But it's not just enough to dismiss the theory that the seemingly increasing population is causing an undeniable increase in attacks. These researchers need to also find ways to make these attacks seem more acceptable. The latest example of this is a report published on Friday with the title, Increased Shark Bite Survivability Revealed by Two Centuries of Australian Records. So the people who are being attacked are increasingly likely to survive. Sounds positive, right? But that's not actually what the report found. The data showed that the survival rate of swimmers and divers attacked by great whites has decreased. That's right, decreased. The report's title refers mostly to the survival rate of victims from bull sharks. But why would the title focus on the positive findings and ignore the negative ones? Here's another curious aspect to the report. On four occasions, it refers to, quote, an bite. To make this grammatical error once may be regarded as a misfortune, but to do it four times looks like carelessness. Could it be that one of the authors originally referred to, quote, an attack, which is how ordinary people refer to a shark encounter, before a more senior editor did a search and replace with the more benign word, bite? These people don't only downplay attacks. One of them has even, in the past, made a joke about them. Vic Pettimores, who runs the shark management program for the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries, joked in 2012 that the two fatal shark attacks in Western Australia that year constitute a, quote, bumper season. I've emailed him several times asking, if, asking him if he regrets this joke but never received a reply. The New South Wales DPI's focus recently has been to promote expensive and unproven mitigation strategies 
while also funding counselling for the friends, family and witnesses traumatised by these increasing attacks. Like the town mayor in Jaws, they are more concerned with preserving their own careers than actually preventing people being attacked in the first place. If there is a Jaws effect in Australia this summer, we should measure it in the number of avoidable deaths caused by the abundance of killer sharks at our beaches, not the supposedly irrational fear of ordinary Australians of being attacked while enjoying the ocean. Now, remember when the worst thing you could call the ABC was auntie? For most of its existence, the national broadcaster has played the role of a kindly old relative who kept you company as a kid with shows like Mr. Squiggle or Blinky Bill. And later in life, when the pressure of the working week became exhausting, soothed you to sleep on Friday nights with reruns of boring British dramas. But it's been at least 20 years since the national broadcaster abandoned that as her primary role in Australia. Rather than the elderly relative at the Christmas lunch who gets tipsy off the brandy and the pudding, Auntie has morphed into the radical niece who tries to shock everyone with her pink hair, tattoos and talk of, well, what do nieces talk about when they want to shock the adults in the room? Let's check in on Triple J and find out. Here's a quote from a story it published this month. Quote, Have you ever been talking about sex positions with friends and then all of a sudden someone will just drop a really random position as their favourite? Unquote. Yeah, it happens all the time. The only contentious point here is that it took the provocateurs at the ABC so long to report on this essential social issue. The article then lists various positions that in a previous era might have been the titles of the, of the stories read out in play school or recipes from Maggie Beer's cooking show, but are now tainted with images that have no valuable contribution to make to a national broadcaster. The only position the piece neglects to mention is the one where Australian taxpayers pay a billion dollars a year so the ABC can gratify itself with mindlessly ephemeral titillation. But even titillation these days comes with handcuffs, so to speak. One of the positions the story lists is called the cowgirl, which is also defined as the cowboy and cow they. Lest any, lest any gender-neutral readers be offended. Call me presumptuous, but I doubt anybody who calls him or herself cow they has any right to be offended by anything published by the ABC, given that they are unlikely to have paid much in tax to finance the operation. If the piece was hoping to offend the people who do finance the ABC, then I have some advice. If you really want to shock mainstream Australia, Quit the ABC, start up your own broadcasting company and talk about your favourite positions till the cowgirls come home. You might then discover the shocking truth that the market for this kind of stuff is even smaller than the audience you're trying to shock. Now, it's becoming increasingly clear that reducing emissions and switching to renewables can only end in disaster. Common sense told us this from the start. You don't create wealth by conjuring carbon credits literally out of thin air and turning them into worthless assets designed to limit industrial activity, or by subsidising inefficient, expensive and unreliable energy sources, 
or by locking up arable land to soak up carbon dioxide, which is actually essential for life on Earth. Nor do you place an entire nation's well-being at risk because pseudo-scientific models have predicted some sort of Armageddon if we don't. Modelling is not science, and life on Earth is not on some fixed trajectory that can only be altered by taxing the poor and forcing them to drive expensive battery-powered cars. Even if human activity was dramatically altering the climate, and there is no evidence that it is, but even if it was, the solution would not be achieved by an unelected or unrepresentative elite imposing restrictions and dictatorial edicts on the rest of us. History has repeatedly shown that innovative solutions to problems are found not by committees of bureaucrats, but by individuals working freely and inspired by their own imagination. Anthony Albanese, Tanya Plibersek and Chris Bowen, being lifelong politicians, have no appreciation of this. Instead, they see themselves as messiahs sent by Gaia to solve the greatest challenge of our time. What they refuse to see now is that the catastrophic result of their supposed solutions are plainer than ever to behold. In Britain, energy prices are so high, people are choosing not to heat their homes or even cook toast for breakfast, according to The Weekend Australian. In Germany, energy is being rationed because the country that was once the powerhouse of Europe can't produce enough energy to satisfy demand. And in the United States, petrol prices have tripled since Joe Biden put a strangled hold on domestic oil production. This is the future that Albo, Plibersek and Bowen are creating for Australia. Offering an alternative to this should be a no-brainer for the Liberals and National Parties. Why aren't they? To answer that, let's bring in my usual Monday guest, the eminently sensible Gideon Rosner of the Institute of Public Affairs. Gideon, welcome to the show. Great to be here. It's not often I get called uh, eminently sensible, but I'll, <laughs> I'll take it, my friend. I'll take it. You're always sensible here, mate. First, let's talk about the obviously catastrophic consequences of reducing emissions and switching to renewables. Gideon, is there anywhere in the world where this has been done successfully? Not even close, Fred, not even close. The fact of the matter is uh, it's failed everywhere it's been attempted. As you said, uh, it's gotten so bad in Britain that people are rationing their own energy. Uh, so as a result, even Boris Johnson, the uber green Boris Johnson, who believe very strongly in the build back better net zero paradigm, uh, has called very sensibly for a pause on Britain's net zero commitments. In Germany, as we all know, they're scrambling to get their coal plants back online and have ditched plans to uh, mothball their nuclear plants because the German green energy dream once hailed as the model and the beacon for all other countries showing that net zero and this over-reliance on renewables was possible, uh, that, that has failed in the, in the wake of the fact that uh, the whole... Uh, the whole time, it was only dependent. The only reason it worked was because they had a pipeline of Russian gas to underwrite the whole thing. Without that, it all crumbled. Uh, the fact of the matter is that renewables, are, on a good day, pro provide about 10% of the energy needs of the entire world, and that's despite billions and billions and billions of dollars in subsidies over a very, very long time. Not to mention the keen interest of groups like BlackRock and all the uh, feel-good triple bottom line investment outfits of the world. So this technology is not yet at the stage, if it ever will be, that it can work. Rushing it onto the market for ideological reasons is having the disastrous uh, effects that you've uh, mentioned in your opening editorial. 
How bad will it get for Australia if we continue on this path? Well, I mean, it doesn't, uh, it's not like it could get much worse. We already have among the highest energy prices in the world, but now, rest assured, it can get worse, a lot worse. What we have to worry about is not just the fact that our energy market here is in the toilet and prices are, are rising, but the fact that if the Albanese government gets its way and if the green lobby gets its way, we will start fiddling around with emissions coming from things like coal mines and so on and trying to shut down our coal industry, our gas industry. Now, it just so happens that they account for our one and two biggest exports in Australia. Uh, without those things, the country will go stone cold broke. So uh, this disastrous experiment has a long way to run. And uh, I think we might see if the powers that be double down on it, consequences really, really getting worse. Do you ever envisage the current federal Labor government changing direction on this? Well, it looks like they already have because they already are starting to water down expectations of uh, emissions targets and so on, on heavy emitting industries. Again, uh, as I've said sort of in a few other forums, it looks like the Labor Party came to office with all these grand plans of 43% emissions targets and so on, and then they realised what I just told you. Uh, if they go too hard on certain industries, then they go out of business and the country goes broke. The problem is it's one thing to exempt big business from these targets, but I don't get an exemption for my power bill. I don't get any sort of credit or, or rebate for the costs that I'm paying. Uh, every rank-and-file consumer has the right to feel ripped off, not least of all because the concessions or the ability to buy uh, uh, emissions trading permits like they're mooting for coal and gas, uh, coal and gas concerns would necessarily be passed on to consumers. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a case of necessity, not, uh, not what works best in, in, in terms of their grand ideological schemes. Well, let's assume that human activity was dramatically changing the climate, Gideon. Would the solution be found in organisations like the United Nations and the World Economic Forum anyway? Absolutely, absolutely, because if all those uh, people who attend Davos every year flew commercial instead of flying their private jets, then their, their carbon footprint, footprint <laughs> would be a lot lower. But in all seriousness, that's kind of the point. It is one rule for me and another rule for thee. I mean, think about it. When these people are off at their Davos uh, convention every year and taking the chairlift up to some you know, well-appointed chalet in the Alps, uh, do you think they're tucking into a bit of fried crickets or prime rib? I, I, I dare say it's the latter. So... Uh, Again, people will feel very, very impoverished and very hurt by these uh, this drive towards decarbonisation, especially if it looks like the top end of town aren't even abiding by it and aren't even hurt by it themselves. Well, people like Kevin Rudd call this the greatest challenge of our times, but I think it's one of the greatest ironies of our times that, in fact, life on Earth has never been better, Gideon. I mean, take crop yields and life expectancy and prosperity all of these measures of human uh, happiness, if you like, they've never been higher. You'd think that being a politician today would be easier than ever. Why is modern politics so pessimistic? Well, one reason, I suppose, is largely because there are problems in the world that have been created by government over the last few decades. I mean, don't forget inflation is at soaring highs. Uh, we're about to go through probably the worst economic collapse in the history of the world. Uh, people's investments have been eroded by the tanking of the share market after uh, the stimulus that was pumped up by governments through corona has been withdrawn. But that all aside, in relation to what you're talking about, the environmental doom and gloom, I think it is because we're looking for a grand moral narrative. We are looking for a great moral challenge of our time, as Kevin Rudd put it, and chiefly that's because we've driven religion out of public square, out of the public square. We have 
forcefully cut off the way in which so many people uh, found meaning and purpose uh, to the world. And we've replaced that with this neo-paganistic sort of religion where and the similarities are all there, the codes of ethics, the uh, great moral character, the, the doomsday and repentance scenario. Uh, the difference is that, of course, this is a very nihilistic religion uh, and it's, uh, of course, sapping away our optimism and our hope for a better future. Well, that leads very nicely onto my next question, which is to do with the Liberal Party. Douglas Murray had a great piece in the Telegraph of London on the weekend, lambasting the British Conservative Party for having almost nothing to show after a decade in power. He said, quote, whether it was government borrowing, tax rises, woke washing through everything or anything else, it is exceptionally hard to point to any area of public life which has not gone the way that the establishment ex expected, unquote. As the most pertinent example, he cited the prevalence of diversity over the concept of merit. Murray's piece seemed rather pertinent here in Australia too. Gideon, what would you say to the federal, the federal coalition has to show for its decade in power? Extremely little, extremely little. And that's very sad. And that's not just something uh, that was unique to the federal government. I mean, state governments too often uh, from the coalition have left very little in terms of legacy, partly because Labor plays to win. Uh, Labor are already, uh, you know, moving huge parts of their agenda through. They actually use political capital to get their promises implemented, very ideological ones. The Liberal Party seems to just spend uh, a few years faffing around in white cars and then wondering why, where it all went wrong when the government blows away like dandelion spores. I mean, Tony Abbott would be the last Liberal Prime Minister who seemed to invest political capital when it mattered, who seemed to take on big challenges, things like abolishing the carbon tax, the unfairly maligned 2014 budget, which at least attempted to do something about the gargantuan debt, which has only gotten worse since. But when you look at the Morrison government, and in particular the uh, Turnbull government, you see... Uh, incarnations of the Liberal Party that just Im implemented a paler version of Labor's agenda. The message that comes out of, of the Liberal Party these days seems to be, well, we'll do all the things Labor wants us to do, but we'll do a less extreme version and we'll be better managers. Uh, they, you, I, you only have to go back to the 2016 election where Malcolm Turnbull ran the, uh, the slogan jobs and growth. Now, that slogan was, you know, First of all, nausea-inducing because you heard it so many times. But secondly, uh, it was very notable for the absence of a verb. The Liberal Party has failed to make a case for the moral rightness of its ideology and its principles and therefore cannot translate that into effective action when they get into government. All they can do is purport to be a better management team, but that doesn't really inspire people and, frankly, that doesn't lead to much better results because we don't need better management. We need better government, or rather we need less government. We need government getting out of our lives and we need uh, a, a small government, smaller liberal alternative, which just isn't forthcoming right now. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, it's no coincidence that at the same time the coalition parties seems to abandon those principles you just mentioned of. And I'd add, I'd add to that free speech, uh, small government you mm. mentioned, but free speech and individual liberty. Those things seem to have been abandoned. Uh, you know, I, I can't paint the whole party with the, with the one brush here because there are exceptions. But generally, that, that, abs that uh, inability to achieve anything in, in office coincided with these principles being discarded, wouldn't you agree? I would absolutely agree. And you only have to look to Corona to see how badly the Liberal Party fell from grace. I mean, look at the Morrison government's track record during Corona. It was galling last week to see Scott Morrison saying, well, we've come out through the pandemic well. For one thing, no, we haven't. If you look at actually 
the outbreak until now, we haven't actually saved any lives in terms of excess deaths and so on. That We just kicked the can down the road and delayed the inevitable. But more to the point, when you look at the trillion-dollar debt, when you look at the fact that Australian citizens were rendered stateless because Scott Morrison made it a criminal offence for them to come back to their own country, when you see the fact that Scott Morrison took out the checkbook and underwrote all of those awful lockdowns, which limited almost every human freedom uh, imaginable, you can see how badly the Liberal Party abandoned those principles. But I'll give you an even more pertinent example to me. Shortly before the 2019 election, uh, 2022 election, I should say, uh, the then communications minister, Paul Fletcher, announced that he would be uh, introducing a disinformation code of practice for online media, uh, online media outlets. What that meant was that the, Depart the Australian Communications and Media Authority would have the power to demand that online platforms took down anything they subjectively deemed to be misinformation or disinformation up to... An, and, the, and the definition of misinformation was so wide. I mean, it included things like like anything that might be harmful to marginalised people uh, or things that might be harmful to the environment even. So you and I having this discussion talking about the fact that renewable energy just won't work, that could deem to be under Paul Fletcher's uh, grand utopia, uh, misinformation, and we could be, an ADH could have to remove this content from the network. That just shows you how the party of liberalism completely abandoned free speech. I could go on, uh, but those are just some examples of the Liberal Party being anything but liberal. And just quickly before you go, Gideon, Anthony Albanese is making a lot of political mileage out of the uh, exposure of uh, Scott Morrison having, a, uh, you know, helped himself to a bunch of ministries while during the COVID lockdown. And Albanese thinks he's, he's, he's getting a lot of political advantage out of this. I don't think he realises that, in fact, Australians are just sick of the power games being played in Canberra, don't you think? Look, I think people are sick of Canberra power games, but to the same extent also, they it's priced into the stock. People expect a bit of gamesmanship, a bit of, you know, funny, funny business to go on in Parliament. Um, I, I think the danger for Albanese is that he appears to think he's still in opposition when he's actually in government now. Uh, I think that, yes, make a meal of it on the first day, send out one of your deputies, one of your front benches, you know, your integrity in government person to hammer Scott Morrison day after day after day. But Albanese actually needs to start putting some colour around his agenda and actually start to show that he's implementing some sort of agenda. Now, you and I might not like that because his agenda isn't a particularly good one, uh, but the, the more he gets into the reeds with this, I think there is the bigger danger of him being seen to be uh, over-egging it a bit, and I think he needs to pull in his head in a little bit at this stage. Gideon Rosner, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Fred. That's Gideon Rosner, one of the many sensible voices at the Institute of Public Affairs. There is a popular saying among centre-right people, just because you're offended doesn't mean you're right. Sadly though, our legal system doesn't subscribe to this type of old-fashioned common sense. Being offended is now legally recognised, and anybody who causes offence can be charged with having committed an offence. It's no surprise that the people who seek remedy through these laws all come from the same identity groups, the type of groups that demand respect for their life choices because to not do so is bigoted, at least according to the zeitgeist. Conservatives and Christians never bother suing those who offend or insult them for two reasons. They aren't that easily offended and the judiciary wouldn't care anyway. The explicit purpose of laws prohibiting offensive language is not, not to protect everybody equally, which is what laws in a proper liberal society are meant to do, but to protect those 
identity groups who claim to be oppressed by the wider culture. As such, they are also designed to teach the bigoted mobs how to behave. The granddaddy of these legislative acts is Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act, which was passed by federal parliament in 1994. It had been drawn up by Labor Attorney General Michael Lavarch, who said at the time, quote, legislation can have a powerful educative role in promoting tolerance within the community, unquote. Get that? This type of law isn't only meant to prevent an entirely new type of crime, it's to educate the community how to behave. We should have seen where this would lead. Victimhood has since acquired a new status and a generation of bureaucrats has emerged to defend victims against those whose values, quite rightly, don't comply with the type of morality promoted by this new legislation. One of the worst examples so far was cartoonist Bill Leake, who was hounded to the grave by the Australian Human Rights Commission over a cartoon in which he depicted one of the main causes of Indigenous disadvantage. That Bill's opinions were honestly held and fair didn't matter to the Human Rights Commission. He had defied the new orthodoxy and needed to be punished. My next guest is Christian campaigner and defender of human rights, Lyle Shelton, who is currently going through a similar situation. Lyle, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, uh, Fred. Firstly, let's start with your background. As the leader of the Australian Christian Lobby from, from 2013 to 2018, you were a prominent opponent of gay marriage at the time of the national plebiscite in 2017. Why did you oppose this plebiscite? Well, we were concerned, uh, Fred, that if you redefined marriage in law, that would then trigger all these uh, 18C type provisions, uh, like you mentioned from the Federal uh, Racial Discrimination Act. Uh, in our state-based regime of anti-discrimination laws down at state level, there's 18C type provisions, which uh, then become weaponized uh, against people who have a different view of, of marriage. So we were concerned about freedom of speech and freedom of religion being impacted. We're also very concerned that redefining marriage would lead to um, the, uh, the teaching and indoctrination of children to radical uh, gender fluid ideology at school. And of course, we've seen that happen on steroids and we've now seen the, the women's sport thing. So there's been a whole lot of knock-on consequences that we could foresee and that's why we campaign so hard. We'll get to those knock-on uh, consequences in a second, but I, I'm, I'm guessing that being Christian, you conducted your side of this debate with, with a, a certain level of civility. What, how did the other side of the debate respond to you at the time? Yeah, it was very difficult, uh, Fred. Um, we were called bigots, we were called homophobes, and you know they, they didn't even um, give us any credit for the fact that we'd supported the removal of all discrimination uh, in, in Commonwealth law. Some 80 uh, or so laws were changed with our support to take away discrimination against same-sex couples, but they wanted that word marriage. And so we were um, subject to all sorts of vile abuse. We had venues that we were seeking to hire, um, subject to attack. Uh, my office was bombed, firebombed, uh, a few days before Christmas in 2016, and the Australian Federal Police said nothing to see here. It was covered up. Uh, it was later found out to be a same-sex marriage activist uh, committed the bombing. Uh, and our, uh, our names, my name as a director of Australian Christian Lobby and my fellow directors were placed 
on the internet by a same-sex marriage activist after the bombing, which, which certainly you know, put us and our families in danger. So the tactics used were terrible. Uh, it was a very um, difficult period, but we felt it was important to stand up uh, for our freedoms uh, during this campaign. So let's fast forward to the year 2020. Two drag queens appear at the Brisbane City Library to perform for children. What happened next? Yeah, I was living in Brisbane at the time and uh, I noticed uh, this protest uh, appeared online. So a group of uh, student activists led by a very brave uh, young LNP member by the name of Wilson Gavin. Uh, I recognised one of the other uh, people in the protest and, and they were just peacefully uh, chanting drag queens are not for kids. And I thought, gee, these, these kids, these young people, these young student uh, protesters are, are very brave because obviously gender fluid uh, drag queens and, and people who promote the, uh, the sex trade uh, shouldn't be presented before children in a public library. And uh, sadly, uh, Wilson Gavin uh, was subject to a, a vicious backlash on social media and sadly took his life uh, a day or two later. So I decided to write a blog about this uh, and uh, the essence of the blog was that uh, these drag queens were not for kids, they were dangerous role models for children. And uh, a few months later, I received a letter from the Queensland Human Rights Commission uh, compelling me to go to mediation with the drag queens. Okay, we'll get back to the uh, Human Rights Commission in a minute, but did the tragic death of Wilson Gavin have any effect on the debate? Did it, did it lower the heat of the confrontation at all? Well, I, I, I think it probably did initially, Fred, but it, it didn't um, you know, stop uh, the uh, desire to then go after me for writing uh, my blog. And uh, I wanted to expose in the blog uh, what I'd found out about the two drag queens that were uh, placed in front of very little children. Uh, you know, one was uh, uh, a, a, a woman presenting as a man who on, on, his, uh, on her <laughs> social media page was crowdfunding to have a double mastectomy so she could present as, as a man. The other was parading his adult entertainment uh, X award. Uh, so these are the sort of role models that Brisbane City Council allowed to be placed in front of children. And I just felt that the public needed to know. Uh, I had a blog which had a bit of a following, so I wrote this up and uh, that got me into trouble with the law. So the Queensland Human Rights Commission got involved. How did that happen? It happened by, well, I noticed that one of the drag queens started um, uh, reaching out to me on Twitter, tweeting that I was in trouble with the law. I just ignored that. Uh, but then a few weeks later, a letter arrived in the mail, which um, compelled me, summonsed me to go to a mediation. And if I didn't go, uh, I would be fined. So I had no choice. Uh, so I went along to this mediation. It was during COVID, so it was held over the phone. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not allowed to say what happened there because they, it's all secret squirrel stuff by, by law. Uh, but needless to say, um, the mediation uh, failed uh, because I wasn't going to back down. I wasn't going to um, apologise or take down my blog. I was respectful and I, and I still want to be respectful. I don't agree with these drag queens and what they represent and what they're trying to indoctrinate children into. Uh, but um, I, I, there's no way I'm going to resile from, from what I said in my exercise of free speech. So that they escalated it to the Queensland Civil and Administrative Tribunal, which is a quasi court. And uh, we've been locked in litigation for about two years um, and I've finally been given a trial date. So it went from the uh, 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 mediation meeting under the auspices of the commission to the courts. Did it ever occur to anybody on the other side of this case, especially the Human Rights Commission, that you also have human rights to free speech and free thought? 
No, that's not part of the equation. Um, they've demanded that uh, I apologise. They've demanded that I remove my blogs from the internet and they've also demanded $20,000. Um, and uh, I've said no to those uh, because I think free speech is too important. So where's the case now? How much has it cost you so far and how far do you intend to take it? Well, so um, the, the latest development uh, in recent weeks is that there was a directions hearing in QCAT and a trial date has been set for me for November 28 to uh, 30. So it's a three day trial in the, uh, in the tribunal. Um, the case has so far cost um, in excess of $100,000 uh, because it's dragged on over two years. We, we know with these uh, so-called human rights bodies that the process is the punishment um, and that's designed to try and, you know, create this chilling effect where people just back off. I've been very fortunate, Fred, that um, uh, people have been generous in their crowdfunding support of me. Um, if I didn't have a bit of a public profile, uh, I think I would have had to have folded my tent, folded my tent but uh, I've been fortunate to have public support so I can fight this on. And um, we intend to fight this all the way. Um, I, uh, if I lose the trial in November, we will certainly appeal. Uh, I will not be backing down. I don't want to sound like some sort of um, Mart or anything like that, but I just think um, this should never have to happen to anyone in Australia. It shouldn't have had to happen to Bill Leake, shouldn't have, have, have it to happen to the QUT students or Drew Pavlov. Um, we've got to fight for freedom of speech in this country and unfortunately our politicians don't have the courage to amend these laws that are like 18C uh, down at the state level, at the federal level. They've got to be changed so that freedom of speech is restored to this nation so we don't have these nonsense um, legal stouches that cost lots of money and cause people uh, grief and heartache. Well, we need to remember what you were trying to say as well. You were trying to defend the innocence of childhood. Yep. I mean, that's, you don't really need to have a legal defence to, to say those sort of things, or should you? Or? Well, you shouldn't have to, Fred. And, um, you know, I think if, if only the public knew what was going on uh, and what, uh, what the consequences uh, have been of redefining marriage. Um, you know, pe people were told in 2017 during the marriage plebiscite, love is love, it only affects um, you know, the, the, the loving couple. But the consequences have been far reaching. It's, it's weaponised these anti-discrimination laws. Uh, it's uh, almost destroyed women's sport. And we're seeing our children being indoctrinated into radical LGBTIQA plus gender fluid ideology. This is where we've got to as a result of giving into identity politics back in 2017. And all these consequences were carefully hidden. When we raised them in the, in the years leading up to the plebiscite, we were ridiculed by the gay activists like uh, Christine Foster, Tony Abbott's sister, who said that Christian schools would never be affected. And, and of course, they have they've been doing nothing but going after Christian schools ever since to try and stop them from um, teaching uh, the truth about marriage and gender. So we've unleashed a whirlwind here and freedom of speech is one of the big casualties that we're seeing because of the weaponization of the human rights commissions and these kangaroo courts. Do you think the people who voted in favour during that plebiscite uh, envisaged that it would one day lead to this? No, I don't, th don't think they did. Um, we tried very hard. Our campaign, um, I was involved with the Coalition for Marriage at the time. Uh, we tried to tell people this is a referendum on freedom of speech, freedom of religion and what your children will be taught in school. Um, but uh, we were outgunned uh, by uh, an activist class that had the corporate, woke corporates behind them, it had uh, big tech, it had the media, had the ABC. And so um, despite our best efforts, we were un unable to get uh, that message through. But everything that we said would happen uh, has happened uh, much quicker than we thought.
And just before you go, Lyle, uh, just to broaden our, our perspective here, for years, even people on the centre-right of politics have subscribed to the ultra-liberal view of the world. You do you, man, as long as you're not causing me harm, then everything's cool. Is this a viable long-term strategy for a culture? I mean, do, can, it, can a liberal culture survive without some element of, for example, Christian principles? No, no, it can't, Fred. And, you know, we're seeing this play out with, with uh, cases like mine where, you know, we've, we've set up a clash of freedoms in our society because, you know, OK, everyone's free to do whatever they like. But then we've got to decide, well, is it right for um, gender fluid drag queens who promote the sex industry uh, to you know, be in front of children. Well, you know, a, a Christian or a Judeo-Christian ethic would say, no, um, we understand from history and tradition and from our, our values that have been passed on through the generations that you protect the innocence of childhood. Uh, it's only in this mad moment uh, in the 21st century where we're departing from this. And I think, you know, history has shown us the American experiment show, um, was set up in, in democracy based on the fact that virtue is what uh, has to be at the basis of of this experiment in democracy. And of course, Australia borrowed the best from the American system. Um, you can't have democracy and freedom without virtue underpinning it. Because freedom isn't freedom to do whatever I like. Freedom is to do what I ought to do. And that's how we have true freedom. And uh, sadly, we've lost sight of this in this liberal experiment that we've embarked on. Lyle Shelton, thanks so much for your time. Thanks very much, Fred. That's Lyle Shelton, who is fighting arguably the most important free speech case in Australia right now. Now, before I go, there was some great news out of South Australia today. The state branch of the Liberal Party is in the process of being retaken by genuine conservatives. Journalist David Penberthy reported in The Australian, quote, branch by branch, party conservatives are wresting the South Australian division out of the hands of the left in a state long dominated by senior moderates, including former Defence Minister Christopher Pine, ex-Finance Minister Simon Birmingham, and ousted Premier Stephen Marshall, unquote. The triggers for the takeover were Marshall's dismal performance, his government lasting only a single term, and the loss of the seat of Boothby at the federal election. If you had to guess which Australian state would wake up from this small L liberal slumber first, you probably would have picked the more rugged states of Western Australia and Queensland, not the wine buffs and Epicureans of South Australia. But good on them. South Australian Senator Alex Antich, who is the leader and figurehead of the party's revival, told The Australian, quote, The days of the Liberal Party in South Australia being controlled by 25-year-old ABC-watching, Guardian-reading political staffers are over, unquote. We'll have Senator Antich on the show as usual later in the week. And also, if you followed the outer-known pro-surf contest in Tahiti on the weekend, you will have seen that although West Australian Jack Robinson was eliminated early in the event, he has held on to his position at the second on the, in the world rankings. This means he's only two heat wins away from winning the world title in California next month. He's the closest any Australian male athlete has come to the title since Mick Fanning in 2013, in a sport that Australia dominated throughout the 1970s, 80s and 90s. We hope he brings it home. That's all from me. Thanks for watching. And remember, tell your friends to download the ADH app to their phones and TVs where you can watch all our content live and on demand, and it's free. And I'll see you tomorrow night at nine o'clock. Good night.